college is not for everyone. It's it's for a significant subset of the population, but not for everyone. And so today, one of the problems we have is too many kids go to college. What is up, everyone? Welcome to Education Policy Weekly, the number one place to learn how to change schools for good. I'm your host, John Phillips. Today, I am joined by Ohio University professor Richard Vetter to talk about all of the ways that our system of college is broken. Before we dive in, make sure that you are subscribed to Education Policy Weekly on whatever podcast app you use, and that you are following me on Twitter and Instagram at ByJohnPhillips. College has become the be-all to end-all for schools and students over the last half century. In this conversation with Richard Vetter, we're going to explain why that is a problem, how our system of college going has become broken, and what we can do to fix that issue. But before we dive in, I just want to make it clear that regardless of what position you hold in schools or districts, there are a few ways that you can help create more options for students than going to college. You can write your city council, your state representative, and your state senators to push for more career options in schools and more funding at the district level. There's a template of this letter available at byjohnphillips.com. Also, you can call those very same individuals and we will have sample language for that conversation on my website as well. Once you take those steps, then call on a friend or two to write or call as well. At the school level, you can use those very same talking points in conversations with administrators to try and bring in outside resources to help students that are not looking at college as their first choice for what to do after high school and to create in-class options for students who want to go into a trade rather than to go to college after high school. Without further ado, my conversation with Richard Vetter. Joining me today is Richard Vetter, who is Distinguished Professor Emeritus of Economics at Ohio University and a Senior Fellow at the Independent Institute. Thank you so much for joining me today, Richard. Glad to be with you, John. So you are one of the most prominent voices around just how broken, and you we can nitpick on words, but how broken our higher education system is. From cost to federal assistance to general accountability and accreditation, people and our government are both investing a lot of money in, into institutions that are too big and are failing in a number of ways. So just to start big picture, how did we get here? Well, it, it, uh, it took a long time. Uh, Harvard was founded in 1636. So uh, where are we now? 413 years later. Uh, so it has built uh, the system of, of our universities is built over that time. And in fairness uh, to American higher education, I think for a long time, uh, most people would say we had a rapidly growing but also improving system of schools. And if you uh, surveyed people, say, in 1950 and asked them, uh, how would you say uh, American universities are relative to those anywhere else in the world, most people would say that we probably had the best system of, of higher education in the world. We were turning out uh, uh, a large number of quality graduates. 
Uh, we had uh, we were providing for the needs of some middle income, in some cases low income students who are able to go to college and succeed in life. We were turning out Nobel Prize winners in a variety of important uh, disciplines like chemistry and physics uh, and literature for that matter. And uh, so we we had a successful system. The system, however, has become somewhat, uh, I hate to use the word corrupted, but the, that word may fit, I guess, so I'll use it, uh, by uh, almost excessive uh, uh, support of it by uh, third parties, of which by far the largest are governments, and of those the most important is the federal government. The uh, in Until 19. 40 or so, really, until uh, World War II, or even after World War II, the federal government played a relatively minor role in higher ed. Uh, we did have the Morale Act, uh, the creating land-grant colleges in the 1860s. Uh, its importance has, I think, been somewhat overrated. It, 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 it was a an important piece of legislation, but uh, it, it didn't. Even in 1940, a majority of kids going to college in America were going to private schools, and the best colleges were almost all uh, private universities, uh, including the Ivy League schools like Harvard, Yale, Princeton. So. Um, in modern times, uh, the government's role has expanded extraordinarily, especially the federal government role. And after 1980, roughly, 79-80, we started the U.S. Department of Education. So that role has expanded. And I think the impact of that has been less positive, indeed, mostly negative, in that it has dropped a lot of money out of, I, I, I say this, this is not literally true, we've dropped money out of airplanes over college campuses, but what has it gotten us? Uh, it has gotten some excessive spending, it has gotten uh, a growth in bureaucracies, it's gotten, um, according the best we can tell from looking at the data, no improvement in learning. In fact, there's some indication that there's been some modest decline in what students know uh, who, who go to college, much the same argument that you hear uh, at the K-12 through level, by the way. Uh, so you got, you have that same theme that you see at K through 12 appearing at the college level, and uh, yet the costs have risen. Uh, so we're doing less with more, uh, uh, and uh, so the system has become somewhat corrupted. And I do think I don't want to blame it all on the federal government, but I do think the student uh, loan program has a big part to play in this. Uh, Bill Bennett, who was the U.S. Secretary of Education back in the 80s, uh, told, uh, wrote an article in the New York Times in 1987, which uh, has become somewhat famous in that he said that uh, all these loan programs have come along, uh, and what have they done? They've just allowed colleges the ability to raise their tuition fees more than they were prior to that, and so colleges have become very aggressive in raising fees. Uh, they've captured a majority of that extra federal money that was going, supposedly going to students. Uh, they, they, the colleges captured it 
it in the form of higher tuition fees. And then they turned around and used this money to, uh, in a lot of ways which were really tangential to learning or to uh, even creating knowledge in the research, research sense. Namely, the money went to things like uh, hiring more administrators, uh, lowering teaching loads for faculty, uh, uh, building, in some cases, expensive uh, buildings and uh, f- fancy atriums and uh, what's the latest uh, uh, the, the kids love there, these what kind of pool there? The, these swimming pools that are fancy, lazy rivers, mm-hmm. lazy mm-hmm. rivers. That's the latest in the, what sometimes I call it the country club of ization of right. universities. Uh, that we become sort of finishing schools uh, for kids to have a good time in that period between age 18 when they graduate from high school and age 22 or 23 when they finally uh, gradually enter the real world uh, in the labor the labor force. So one thing that, that you said that I think is important when we think about the relative challenges of K-12 to higher ed. And the the main difference that I see is that in a lot of spaces in K-12, the answer has never been, let's create incredible amounts of bloat and build all of these fancy new objects all across the, the spectrum. Whether you are high performing or low performing, in K-12, there is a gap between, it just in terms of, you know, building um, building resources all the way down to curriculum and, and access that students, you know, may have differences depending on, on zip code, depending on where, where you end up going to school, all of that. Whereas at high, in higher ed, it's really a very much wider systemic challenge. And so for me, and I think my background, I think, comes into my feelings about this and the trouble that I have sometimes negotiating it is I grew up in a a poor neighborhood in Philly and my mom from when I was in sixth grade, she basically said if I didn't get into an Ivy League school that the likelihood that she would be able to afford college or also that the likelihood that she would be able to be willing to take on incredible amounts of loans was really low. And so her, her whole argument was I couldn't go to college and take out loans. And so that made me work incredibly hard. And luck, luckily enough, I was able to make it into one of those Ivy leagues and become one of those privileged few. And I have reaped the benefits of that. But I think a lot about the privilege that came with my ability to even do that. And it shouldn't be the type of system where you not only need to get lucky K through 12, but you also need to get lucky about where you're taking your loans out from and and where you're going to school and all of that. And so the challenge for me is the narrative that we push at the K-12 level, that parents push, that teachers push, that schools push has not stifled this overemphasis on higher ed 
But in fact, it has ramped it up. It has served as a catalyst that has enabled higher ed institutions to continue on with a lot of the practices that they have become very good at implementing at serving themselves, not the people that they're meant to actually serve. So when we think about what can be done, both at the K-12 level and other people and other groups that are trying to reform higher ed, what are some of the steps that you would see as most impactful? Well, uh, the business, it's easy to identify the problems with higher ed. It is more difficult to come up with solutions to those problems. Uh, uh, I, listening to you uh, talk about uh, K through 12 uh, reminded me that I, I completely, first of all, I completely agree with you on, on what you were saying. And one thing that I, uh, one, one advantage of becoming an old guy like myself, and I've been teaching, I, I mean, I will be actually teaching my 55th year wow. uh, this, this fall at Ohio University. I will uh, 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 be teaching for the 55th year my class in American economic history. Uh, so I've been around the block a few times, and I've seen see how things have changed somewhat over time. Right. And I think think American colleges have, uh, first of all, at the college level, the gap between the average college and the Ivy League type colleges has grown over time. Uh, and uh, going to being uh, at an Ivy League school was important in the 1950s or 60s. But it wasn't absolutely critical because if you went to a good quality state school, you had accomplished something in life because you were one of the top 10% of the population. So you were a part of the elite and you didn't think of yourself as a leech. You went to a public school and so forth. I I went to a private school. I uh, turned down. Uh, I I, I uh, was accepted at Harvard and didn't go there. Uh, but uh, I I did go to a, a fancy private school like you did, and uh, I do. At the time, I thought it gave me a little bit of an advantage. I think that advantage has grown over time. I think the gap. The, between the, the the rich and the poor within the colleges themselves has gotten much much bigger uh, over time. Uh, the, the, that's not what you asked, but I'll throw that out. For yeah, no, I think it's an what, important what, point for sure. It, 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 so the selection of a college, uh, e- even if you first of all, there's a decision: should you go to college or not? And I think too often the answer is automatically yes and yes. We, we can talk we can talk about that but even if even if it is appropriate to go to college the choice of college does make a difference the choice of major makes some difference uh, there are a lot of factors that enter into this that uh, are in determining whether your experience post secondary uh, education is a positive one or not and uh, too many people are making those wrong decisions. And part of it comes from misguidance uh, at the K through 12 level. Uh, my wife was a guidance counselor uh, for many, many years. And although she did encourage higher ed, and by the way, in a 
rural Appalachian school where 20% of the kids went to college when she started at that school. When she left, uh, it, it, it was much higher than that. But she, too, f- agrees with what I think you and I both feel, that college is not for everyone. Right. It's, it's for a significant subset of the population, but not for everyone. And so today, one of the problems we have is too many kids go to college. So in reforming the college system, one thing that needs to happen is, is, is something that the great Austrian economist Joseph Schumpeter once called creative destruction. In order to get better, we need to destroy some things. And by that I mean, uh, just and by the way, the the business community context of that is, we no longer have Enron. Eastman Kodak is a shadow of its former self. U.S. Steel was the biggest corporation in the world in 1901 when it was founded. Now it is, uh, you know, a midland-sized uh, company of sort of the secondary importance. Right. Uh, because it has, if not been totally destroyed, it has been severely wounded because it hasn't uh, kept up with the times and with technological change and so forth. Colleges uh, likewise need uh, to sometimes uh, uh, be uh, destroyed in order to reallocate resources to some better uses. And so we have kids who are going to college now who don't graduate. What do we have? Forty percent of kids roughly that enter uh, four-year programs do not graduate within six years, not four years, not five years, but six years. So we have a large dropout rate. But those who do graduate, uh, if you believe the New York Federal Reserve Bank, and I am inclined to sometimes mm-hmm. at least, in this case I will, they say that about 40% of recent college graduates are what they call underemployed. Uh, uh, in 1970, uh, if you took 150 taxi drivers uh, randomly and picked them out, chances are one of them would have been a college graduate, one out of 150. You do the same thing today, you get 25 who are college graduates. So we are training more and more people to do sort of ordinary, relatively non-skilled things like driving taxi cabs or mopping floors or working in a fast uh, uh food uh, operation or uh, whatever, uh, discount house uh, selling uh, uh, stuff, uh, cashier at Walmart. Uh, And we have more and more college kids doing that sort of thing. Uh, I don't mind if college kids do those kinds of things, but you don't need a college degree in order to do that, and I'm not sure society can afford to devote all the resources to send these kids to school for four, five, six years to end up doing that kind of uh, stuff, particularly if in the process they're also running up a large college debt, which many of them are, 45 million of them are. So uh, we are over-invested in higher ed, and I would actually, 
in uh, think what something that is going to happen is that several hundred schools are going to close in the next decade. And I, instead of weeping about it or saying, "Isn't it awful?" I say, uh, it, "I'm. I wish it would happen faster and more in, in a, to a greater extent." <laughs> right. Sounds sounds weird. It sounds like I'm an anti-higher ed. It's not that. I'm. I just want to realign. Uh, uh, our resources with the realities of the labor market and with the, uh, uh, the, our financial conditions, which is say that most of us can't spend, afford to spend forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars to go to school. And also, if you took out the even the money that gets loaned out that does get used to finance someone who ends up dropping out after two years, and even if you take that money. And then all the money that they end up having to pay back in loans over time, assuming that they're able to, and all of the money put into getting them, you know, prepared to apply to college and just all the time and money spent on that process for a lot of students. If we re like you said, if we reallocated some of those dollars and started thinking about okay, instead of pushing everyone into this one trajectory, instead, if we took that same pot of money and reallocated it to improve, you know, a lot of those people's basic um, ability to have a happy life, and, and people can debate what that means, but I would argue it would be fruitful instead of having them be underwater in terms of loans have them be financially afloat and be able to afford to go to the doctor and be able to afford all of these things that they threw away not only years of their lives, but also dollars that they could have been saving to make sure that they were as stable as possible. And so that that kind of is one of my biggest worries is that we have created a behemoth in which all students when they I won't say all but I would say far too high a majority of students feel like when they enter into ninth grade that they need to be figuring out how to get to college and I am very worried that that is only going to get worse over time if we keep on buying into this higher ed industrial complex um to put Ab- one absolutely to put one name yeah, on it right yeah that's a, that's a good name it worked for uh uh it's a variation on what president eisenhower said back in uh 1961 and it, it applies today uh the absolutely uh, it's funny that you bring all of this up because uh, I'm, I'm meeting shortly with in the treasurer, state treasurer of my state, who wants to come down and talk to me about what he calls uh, financial literacy, and he what he believes. Uh, I think, from the sounds of things, that we ought to be going into K through 12 schools, and the only issue is at what level do you do this, right. and start talking to students and say, let's talk about your options, your future. Let's talk about money, something you don't think about a lot other than you're getting your allowance or the small amount of money your parents give you or that you manage to earn. 
Right. Uh, let's talk about something you don't you think about, but you're going to have to start thinking about. And uh, let's say, first of all, should should you go to college or not? Uh, what are the pros and the cons? And what are the risks? associated with it. And what happens to kids who go to college who somehow don't graduate from college? What happens to kids who go to college and major in a subject that sounds really neat to them, something that sounds uh, be interesting, but that no one in the in the real world seems to be terribly interested in. Right. Uh, and I don't mean to knock anthropology, but the, we don't need a ton of anthropology majors. And uh, if you listed days. out the skills that it takes to succeed in certain majors, and and mm-hmm. this is this is a line of thinking that you know for me as an English major at Penn, I think a lot of English majors would have disagreed with me, but mm. I think the line of thinking is, and and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that the the line when it just comes to value is here are the skills that you have, and. How can you maximize those skills? Find a profession where you're able to use those skills in a way that makes you feel valued and appreciated and challenged and all of these things that if you look at a lot of the research on job performance and job happiness, it's not about, oh, well, I loved this growing up. It's about, well, I found a space where I have freedom to take on challenges that I am energized by and that matter and that I feel like every day when I go to work, I'm putting something together that is worth the time that I'm spending. People like working. And so it's about maximizing that value. And how do we start having that conversation instead of, well, just follow your dream? Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, uh, absolutely, amen. I agree with you 100%. And uh, we have a complete mismatch between the perceptions of students who enter college and their parents yes. and, and the realities of the labor market. And uh, as you point out, there's another dimension. It's more than just getting, quote, a job and getting a high income and so forth. That's part of it, but that's only part of it. There are many kids who who major in traditional liberal arts subjects that I encourage to continue in those subjects because they love it and because they can adapt it to something. A history major may become a lawyer later on, but they're using some of the learning that they picked up as, as studying history, uh, uh, learning how to write well, and learning uh, 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 how to read well. Uh, they use this later on in life. So, so it, and 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 they and they're ultimately happy. I think the bottom line is you want to be happy in life. So. Uh, It it is a complex thing, and there's no simple, uh, easy answer that applies to everyone. And the problem with the way we've been doing things up to this point is we've been telling once – we've sort of assumed that one size fits all, that everyone should go to college because college graduates – 
do this, that, and the other thing better than high school graduates. They make more money. They're less likely to be unemployed. Uh, they're, uh, they live uh, two years longer or something. There is some data out that show that more educated people live longer, probably because they smoke less and so forth. Uh, and so we, 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 we push out this propaganda, which is sort of one size fits all, college is for everyone, college is for all, and it has caused, I think, a lot of misery in, uh, in people's lives, a lot of people's lives. We have lots of people out there who uh, have uh, huge loan debts and are having a tr- time struggling. Uh, they don't have a good job. Uh, they, they don't have a satisfying job, and they have these burdens to pay. And so we need to get away from it. One way to do it is uh, to simply let some schools fail. Just say, well, uh, this is, and that uh, passes a message on to people that college is not necessarily uh, for everyone. And maybe we should send more people to learn how to be welders and learn how to, uh, we need welders, I'm told. I'm not an expert on welding, but I hear that a good welder can make uh, $100,000 a year. My uncle was a welder and made very, very, very good money. Yeah, and and live a pretty happy life mm-hmm. and uh and not have a lot of student loan debts or other things like that to worry about. Uh so I'm not obviously we could go too far in the other direction. We could tell too many kids to become welders and then we we'll have too many welders. And the market's so correct for all of this stuff. Uh if we start turning out too many welders and the wages of welders go way way down, then the next generation of students will say, well, welding may be not such a good thing for me. Uh, so if we allow markets to work uh, uh, their magic, uh, they won't solve all the problems, but they'll reduce them somewhat. And we sort of insulated the academy, the uh, college professor, uh, college un- uh, colleges and universities, from the market forces because there's a lot of government subsidies and so forth there there's private money too i mean uh your alma mater and my alma mater have about the same i went to northwestern they both have about a 10 billion dollar endowment or 11 billion dollar endowment well i mean that's the hilarious thing is that once you have that endowment the magic that you can work in terms of what you do on your campus what you do in terms of being able to offer aid all of these things magically that gap widened from like you said after world war ii to now if you look at the endowments of the ivies of northwestern of usc all of these places it's no wonder that if you put a lot of private money into markets and allow them to accrue over time that suddenly now all of these universities have not only the the capacity to spend a lot but they also have wild amounts of bloat no, absolutely. In fact, the bloat, I, I've been studying bloat lately because uh, uh, I've been, as I say, I've been around the block or away 50, 55 years, and I've seen it grow over time, not only at my universities, but in more generally the statistics bear this out. And it's much, much bigger today than 40 or 50 years ago. And part of this has been brought on by 
all this extra uh, money that's out there. Some of it private money, philanthropy, and so forth, but most of it uh, government money, especially the student loan money. And we have now at a typical university, and it's more true among the private schools than among the public schools, it's true among both, you have more and more administrators. At, at, at almost any Ivy, at, at any one of the eight Ivy League schools, mm-hmm. I'm fairly certain there are, for every professor, there is at least one and sometimes maybe one and a half administrators. Right. Uh, and, and if you'd gone back 50 years ago and you did the same calculation, there might have been a half of an administrator for every faculty member. Now there's one and a half. It's double or even triple the number. And what do these people do? Well, uh, they all have some job that has, some of it even has, uh, in some cases, these jobs might even be needed. But a lot of them are doing things that somehow we manage to do without. We don't need 50 public relations people uh, at every university to brag about what the school is doing. We can get along with five or ten like they did 30, 40, 50 years ago. Uh, It's a debatable point of how many people you need to fundraise to go out and beg for more money, whether uh, a school like Penn, I'm sure I would be very shocked if they had fewer than 100 people in their development office. I mean, when when anyone, when um, there's a day when Bill Gates' wife was on campus and Mm -hmm. I, I was working for a research group at the time. And it was like sharks to blood in the water. It was wild. The amount of it was cutthroat within the university itself. It was people getting angry at other people for trying to talk to her before they got a chance. And it was it was truly eye opening in that moment to recognize that no matter no matter how many people you think are working on bringing in more money to some of these big universities there are two three times that for sure yeah yeah at the university of california which of course is a, a public school at the university of california uh, in in Ber- at, um, and their headquarters are in berkeley california where of course the most uh, prestigious of the uh, uh, campuses uh, is uh, there are 2,000 people working in the office of the president. Now, none of those people do a lick of teaching, do a lick of research, and uh, some of them are doing, uh, no doubt, some important things. But 2,000, if they make a hundred thousand dollars a piece, which I bet they do on average, some of them make less, some make a lot, lot more. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you've got two hundred million dollars right there, uh, and that doesn't count account uh, for a lot of fringe benefits, which are tend to be very large among academics. By the way, that's one thing uh, we've us professors have benefited from over yes. the years is very, very generous retirement systems, health care systems, and such things. So that $200 million is probably really closer to $300 million. Right. Well, there, there's only 300,000 students at all of the California universities. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's $1,000 a student just to pay for the administrators 
that are not at any one of the ten campuses of the mm-hmm. University of California. They're at a, in a separate office, it adjacent to the Berkeley campus, but separate from. And then besides that, two thousand administrators. Every one of the ten campuses has their own set of administrators. And as you said, John, it's even worse. At the private uh, elite schools, the the Harvard, Yale, Penns, uh, Northwesterns of the world. So uh, there we go. So if there is <laughs> one message that you could make to school district CEOs and principals, everyone who has any power over the messaging that we are giving to students in K-12 now, what would the message be? for how we should be viewing students' lives after high school? Well, I'm starting to come around to the view that we should be teaching students at some point, and I can't quite decide what point that is, probably the beginning of high school sometime. We should be giving them a little lesson in the real world, a little lesson on what happens to kids who go to college, what happens to them? Uh, what happens to the kids who don't go to college? Uh, uh, and point out it isn't a simple-minded uh, thing where there are two groups of people, one who succeed in life, and those are the ones who go to college, and there's a second group of people, the ones who do not succeed in life, and they're the ones that don't go to college. That is more or less, it's a little crude way to put it, but that's more or less the message we've been sending. Yes. We've got to send a different message. And uh, the question, you know, I am uh, not a pedagogical expert on K-12 through education, uh, although I might add every member of my family except me <laughs> is a K-12 through educator. My two children are, my wife was, et cetera, et cetera, my daughter-in-law, yeah, et cetera. All my family are in K-12 through education. Uh, but somewhere along the lines, perhaps at the beginning of high school, perhaps, you know, we could argue whether it should be eighth grade, maybe too early. Twelfth grade is too late, probably. They need to be thinking about this earlier. Uh, but, you know, at what level can kids really uh, appreciate what you're saying? Uh, I'm not sure. Probably, certainly no later than the sophomore year yes. or so of high, high school. Right. Uh, they should have some training, and I hate to say, well, we're going to mandate a standard course, uh, which will be part of the curriculum and all. I'm not sure that's the right way to do it. Maybe it is. Maybe we should have, a, you know, a series of school assemblies every day for sophomores in high school. Uh, not every day, but maybe one a week for a semester, where they're, they're mandatory, where they need to go and learn about some of this stuff. And, 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 and also and, the adults in the building, because as you're, that, as you're Speaking to this, what I'm thinking about in terms of impact is the sheer amount of myth busting that would happen if if you showed some of those numbers that we've talked about today in front of adults who work with kids every day. I think they would be surprised at how what they've been selling because they've been told to isn't necessarily the right way about it. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think uh, you're right. And uh, I think we need to, this is the one simple thing, you know, people say, well, we need to do X, Y, and Z with our education system. And a lot of these things cost billions of dollars or involve 
major transformations. And, you know, K through 12 for many, many people say, well, we got to have smaller classes, which is enormously expensive and mm-hmm. so on. Uh, and it's probably not a, a, a good use of re- scarce resources. But the, what I'm talking about, and, and, I, and I have never, re- I don't think I've ever said this before any audience before in my life except today, is that what I'm proposing isn't going to cost a ton of money. It's not a huge financial drain no. to, edu- to, 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 to do this, but I think it has a pretty big payoff, potentially, yes. and, uh, and the guidance counselors and so forth should reinforce this as well, right. and, uh, and our politicians should. You know, we've had presidents in the United States, and I, this is not a partisan statement. It's true of both Republican and Democrats mm-hmm. alike, have to have kind of push this message that college is for all, yes. and uh, they need to back off that. And I, 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 I must say, I think it's starting to happen a little bit. Uh, but, and I, this may sound political, and I, want, I, I want to keep politics out of this, but, uh, for example, all this call for free college mm-hmm. uh, is maybe is uh, not the right thing we ought to be doing. Maybe we ought to be talking about providing uh, equal educational opportunity for all and things of that nature. I, I, I agree with that. But... The word free college implies college is the solution. Yes. College is, is, the, is nirvana. College is the way to go. And sometimes it is not. Maybe we ought to be talking about free uh, opportunity, or equal opportunities for all. And that might mean welding school for some people. It may mean truck driving school or whatever. Uh, there are messages that we have been sending over long periods of time. And the, the first thing, and I, I love that, that you noted that, you know, it's just a shift in some of the, the way that we allocate the 180 days of school. If we shift some of that to really getting real about what it means to go to college and what your other options are, and then if you pair that with policies that are just as happy to help students that decide not to go to college as those that do, then we're fully getting somewhere. So I, I, I think that this is, I, I love hearing people from all over in terms of their, what they study and what they do. All, all of these thoughts end up culminating in where we've arrived at. And so I think that those two big ideas are what I'm going to walk away with. And I think that it has been really, really great to talk to you about what are the big picture challenges, but then also some solutions. So with that, I just want to say thank you so much for joining me. And I am interested in seeing as we move into the next round of presidential elections and all of that, where this discussion goes, because I think that you're right in that it is only going to grow in terms of more and more people becoming aware that maybe we got it wrong by thinking that college is the, the silver bullet. Yeah, absolutely, John. I've de- it's been delightful talking to you. I've actually enjoyed this conversation, and uh, I hope some of the listeners benefit from it. 
Thank you for listening to this inaugural episode of Education Policy Weekly. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure that you are subscribed on whatever podcast app you use and you give the show five stars there as well. Make sure that you are ready for next week's episode, which will drop next Tuesday, which will feature a conversation with Cara Jackson, who talks all about the way that we really need to think about ed policy now and moving forward to make sure that we are working towards equity in schools. Until then, thanks so much for listening. Class dismissed.